Welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Centre uh, for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. So my name is Thomas Motby. I'm a lecturer here in the Department of Political Economy at King's, uh, lecturer in international politics. And yeah, it's my pleasure to welcome Roger Schumann to the podcast today. So Roger Schumann is an Associate Professor of Politics at UC Santa Cruz. And Professor Schumann's work explores three related topics. Uh, number one, the varieties of capitalism in the post-socialist countries. Number two, the role of networks in political organisation. And number three, the conditions under which large and long-term political projects become possible. So, welcome, Roger. Thank you. Um, okay, so so we're going to start uh, with a project that's less um, sort of contemporary, but but a major project of yours uh, that you completed, I think, in 2014. So, so yeah, a question about your your book, networks and institutions in Europe's emerging markets, and a sort of general question as to where did the interest and motivation come to to sort of study this this topic and this region. So I, I, I came to it partly for personal reasons, I think. Um, I had always sort of abstractly been interested in the question of how societies uh, and individual networks and other kinds of networks transform themselves, whether they endure after or through moments of great social change. Um, my parents, maybe this is you know more personal than, uh, than need be, but uh, my parents were Holocaust survivors. And so, uh, you know, I was sort of interested in like, you know, where did the, where did the Nazi regime go and what happened to, and of course, after the fall of communism, um, similar questions were on my mind. So I came to graduate school seven years after 1989, uh, and, you know, these questions were still very live. And on the one hand, there was the sort of big neoliberal narrative that, you know, there were countries that were charging towards some idealized vision. They were in transition to, uh, in a kind of teleological process, some idealized version of markets and democracy. And, um, and the transition was all about, you know, sort of adopting a single set of institutions that would bring these countries, you know, to sort of Western capitalism, whatever that, whatever that is. And uh, together with, uh, with other people who were my, my mentors, um, luckily, uh, people were questioning, not so much in political science, but in sociology, the idea that, you know, markets are sort of just the product of these institutional transformations. So, you know, markets are about basically saying markets are about more than just, you know, adopting sort of property rights and um, enforcing contracts, but that they're embedded in, in social structures. And so social structures matter. Mm -hmm. And their alternative vision um, to this, you know, sort of like e economist and, and mainstream political science vision um, of the transformation was, of the transition was um, rather that this was a kind of transformation from something that existed and didn't go away, it wasn't displaced and completely replaced by, uh, but that, you know, old social structures and institutional practices were sticky and that they kind of hang around. Mm -hmm. um, so I was really interested and sort of drawn to, um, to that for better, for better or worse. Uh, and, um, and began to think about how I could, you know, sort of work on and think about what the impact of these networks that have endured and been transformed and, um, you know, in words that were in use at the time by one of my advisors, David Stark, um, recombined in the post-socialist period. Uh, uh, what impact did that have 
on the sort of pathways of economic development. So, you know, how did that affect the sort of developing economies, market economies um, that were embedded in these social contexts that presumably varied also uh, across countries? Because, you know, so communism wasn't all one thing. Um, certainly after the death of Stalin, uh, you know, the communist countries began to diverge institutionally, and so they developed in very different ways. And of course, that must have had, at the very least, some impact on what came after 1989. Uh, not to mention that the transitions themselves were different. Um, the degree of openness to the external world was different um, across the countries of communist, of communist Europe. So all of those things had implications. So I was sort of thinking about all of that. Um, and, you know, the project sort of uh, began to take shape around the question of how do networks personal networks of important entrepreneurs and their connections to political parties and to the state, um, and also networks formed by property transformation, the process of selling property that was going, yes, from state to private property, but that privateness had different forms. Right? So, you know, in some places it was more diffuse, in some places it was more concentrated. Um, the nature and identity of the owners also varied from country to country. And so thinking about how those sort of developing networks impacted institutional development was the central question of, um, of the book. And I plugged into uh, or drew on the varieties of capitalism literature, um, you know, to suggest that there were various forms of capitalisms that were emerging um, in the post-communist world that combined different degrees of state and private um, connection and uh, had different relationships uh, that were em emerging and important, prominent between political parties and business owners. Uh, the direction of those relationships also varied across countries. So there were some countries where states were much weaker and business owners, uh, you know, who were oftentimes very large business owners owning banks and, um, and insurance companies, but were essentially gangsters also, uh, uh, had you know, a really dominant role vis-a-vis -vis the state and in other places where those relationships were more balanced. And that was the sort of the, the idea of the project. And um, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think it's very interesting um, that at least some of the literature suggests there's much more homogeneity between these countries than, than the reality and what your book has found that actually there's really significant differences in those varieties of capitalism within this sort of region of the, of the world um yeah and then that conclusion that actually if we're talking about the political institutions that, that sort of develop yeah there's this real variety of outcome uh, and yeah and this explanation you've got for why that occurred um yeah and that that, that idea that there's sort of these, these dense networks of, of politicians and business people as long as there's also intense political competition is least a kind of favourable or broadly distributive uh, institutions. Um, so I guess a follow-up question there would be, uh, and it almost sort of links to this more, more recent work, is the extent to which, for example, in a country like Poland, where you've argued that, yes, in, in sort of the 2014 book, um, but there this was one of the most successful uh, examples of the, these post-communist countries in terms of developing these institutions. Um, do you... Do, would you have a similar view today? Because you also notice in your uh, note in your more recent work that we have had, um, you know, constitutional reform. We've had attempts to, you know, change the, and pack the Supreme Court in Poland. So a few examples of where some of those institutions that were established have have more recently sort of come under yeah. pressure. 
uh, even in those which were sort of more successful examples then. So I don't know if you could maybe comment a little bit about what's happened but since 2014. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think it depends also how we define success. Right? So, you know, so I think in the book, uh, I was taking on the idea that Poland was seen as the most successful because it was also the one, the country that seemed to be growing most rapidly. Um, and, uh, you know, on the basis of sort of economic growth, it was the, it was the most successful case. And the standing story was that that was because of, because Poland had followed the, the formula that involved uncoupling the state from the market, right? So like this, this whole process was about uncoupling and Poland did that, and it, you know, it charged ahead with reform, and, um, and that was why Poland was good. And the other countries that didn't do that, you know, they're worse off. But in fact, as I started to sort of explore that, it turned out that, in fact, that uncoupling had not been as rapid. And, you know, things like privatization got bogged down early on and, you know, took a long time. Um, there were lots of partial privatizations. And more than anything, the networks that connected state and market were particularly dense, right? Much denser than in the other countries that I, um, that I look at in the book. So that was, I think, the sort of the, the, the puzzle and the counterintuitive finding was that, you know, like it seems like that these networks matter in some way in helping economic and political actors navigate through this very chaotic time. So how is that related to the, to the present? Um, you know, I think, and, and, and what comes after, uh, and particularly the turn to um, populism, which certainly is connected to, um, you know, to all of these things. Because alongside the persistence of, of various kinds of networks um, in, in Poland, there emerges the perception that capitalism is a kind of rigged game, um, that uh, you know, it's, it's not a level playing field that anyone can get into, and all sorts of conspiracy theories emerge. That, the, the right wing, um, the current right wing, which emerged out of a broader right wing party that was a sort of solidarity umbrella organization, post-solidarity um, umbrella organization, uh, that this right, new right wing has really capitalized on. So, you know, they have really stoked the flames of um, beliefs that former communists and apparatchiks, people who were, you know, high-level insiders or maybe second-level, you know, they weren't the, like the old guys who by now are all dead and gone, but the sort of second-level um, Communist Party insiders um, who, you know, had various benefits and advantages. And, um, and there's good research that, you know, that, that didn't actually happen, but that doesn't stop large portions of the Polish population from believing that, you know, sort of communism was this period that was a criminal period in Polish history that violated everything that traditional Poland is about. Um, and uh, then 1989 was a sort of sweeping under the rug of all that. And not only, but also it permitted uh, these, you know, sort of insiders to emerge and, you know, their children to reproduce their social capital in all sorts of undesirable ways. What what also is driving this, of course, is that there is, in fact, a growing gap between the mostly rural supporters, um, mostly less educated supporters of this right, but with far right positions on many issues, um, party, uh, 
and an urban middle class and an urban elite that, you know, has charged ahead that, you know, these people see driving fancy cars and going on foreign vacations when, you know, they are living increasingly insecure, um, insecure lives where, you know, foreign companies have come and given them low, very low paying jobs or, uh, you know, doing low value added work and, um, and where they feel a great deal of insecurity. And, and so, you know, I think that's the, that's perhaps the most obvious connection between um, that what we see today is a sort of uh, resentment of the have-nots against the haves in post-communism um, that has really fueled and that, the, and that the right has very skillfully managed to, you know, take advantage of to, to fuel their rise. Yeah. Yes, thank you. So, so, so yes, your more recent work then is, is taking that link and taking that sort of regional focus and an institutional focus and then looking at how in a series of governments in the region have, have, have come to power and have, yeah, they're explicitly addressing the, these these quite popular frustrations. I guess the the link, the causal link there between what came first is an interesting one. We can maybe explore that a bit later in terms of the effect of this rhetoric. But they've come to power, and they said, "Okay, well, we need to do something about foreign direct investment, about foreign investors, about the value of that, and the the redistribution uh, and, and fair distribution of this this wealth." Uh, and also saying, okay, it, it has an impact on local businesses, on local capital. There's maybe been a privileging of international over local capital. So taking this, these anti-globalization positions and rhetoric. Um, so could you say a little bit more then about how you've, you've really focused in on, on this sort of foreign direct investment as a, as a kind of focal point of your, uh, of your research? So in, in this, this paper, you know, what happens when the party is over the impact of new right parties in government on FDI? Uh, regulation. You've looked at Hungary and Czech Republic and Poland yeah. and Bulgaria, but you've also found similar to the book. There's very different outcomes in terms of both policy, but also rhetoric and discourse and what's going on there. There's, there's quite a lot of variation in, in the region. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, I, you know, I should say uh, the, the whole region turned to foreign direct investment out of need, right? Like, you know, these were countries that were poor. Uh, or they were, you know, by European standards, they were poor. They had great need for investment because under central planning, you know, yes, they had infrastructure, but the infrastructure that had been developed was industrial infrastructure was woefully outdated um, and, you know, more or less ready for the scrap heap with some exceptions, but rare ones. So where do we look for, you know, for capital? There are no wealthy Hungarians or wealthy Czechs or wealthy Bulgarians yet. um, So the capital has to come from outside. So foreign direct investment ba- became a kind of, you know, free money uh, that, um, that the region turned to and that began to uh, appear in the form of German car manufacturers, but also many, many fa- smaller size businesses that were creating jobs and investing to build new infrastructure in the region and taking advantage of relatively cheap, but also very relatively well-skilled laborers, right? Because... The, the communist countries did have good education systems, and so you know there was a pool of laborers who were available, who were relatively high skilled, but could be whose labor could be purchased at, low, at relatively low prices, certainly by West European standards. So yeah, so we have the the puzzle. If we restart around here, so we have to re- that this puzzle of um, this real openness. Um, a real encouragement of foreign direct investments throughout the sort of mid to late 90s and even before, and then through quite a lot of the 2000s. And then this change, I think, that your your uh, article 
identifies around the yes. 2010 uh, sort of period, but not equally across the region, where suddenly there's this anti-globalization discourse of the governing parties. Um, and in some countries, this discourse is matched by policy, and in some some cases, it's a slight mismatch. Yes. So there's a sort of uneven development of that since about 2010. Yeah. Um, so so the, the prominence of FDI, you know, doesn't provoke any really important backlash until the financial crisis. And when the financial crisis is transmitted by linkages through banks, but also, uh, you know, there's the perception that it's going to have an impact through manufacturing because as demand shrinks, these countries that are now integrated as, you know, sort of basically vertically integrated producer economies for export, um, they are going to feel the sort of knock-on effects of, um, of, uh, of the crisis. And, um, and in banking, particularly, those impacts are felt very acutely. In some countries, like in Hungary, uh, people have, uh, it's very common for people to have foreign currency loans, so loans that are denominated in Swiss francs or um, in euros. And, uh, and as the crisis affects Hungary and the foreign weakens, their loans suddenly become much more expensive and difficult or impossible to service. Right? So many people feel that you know, they were talked into taking this credit by, you know, by these foreign institutions and you know, now they're suffering because of it, because they didn't know, because they were naive or because they were taken advantage of. And, and that these you know, foreign companies have gotten rich on the backs of their own misery. And, and that's perhaps not with, without substance. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, is, this, is the, the, this was real. So around that time, um, these parties begin to, to reemerge or, um, you know, Fidesz, which is the center-right party in Hungary, begins to, um, it comes back to power in 2010 um, after being out of power for eight years. Uh, in Poland, it takes a little bit longer until 2015 because the sort of pro-business center-right is doing a decent job of governing, and so um, they're actually the first ones to get two mandates, but then in 2015, uh, they're voted out, and this sort of like more socially conservative right, far-right party, um, law and justice, comes back to power. Uh, and, um, and, and they take up these concerns, not just in Hungary and Poland, but also in the Czech Republic, Andrei Babiš, who, uh, who describes himself as the Czech Trump. Um, you know, they, they take up these concerns of foreign investment and foreigners and foreign banks and, um, and the impacts that this is having on Hungary and Poland and the Czech Republic. And um, that takes different forms. But the interesting thing I think that I find in the paper um, that, I'll, that I'll be talking about later today uh, is that the rhetoric in Hungary and Poland is really strong. So particularly in those two countries, which are the sort of leaders in experimenting with, you know, or, well, first with um, playing to this, this sort of uh, discourse um, and experimenting with some mild changes, uh, the rhetoric is really strong, but I think actually the policy products that emerge from that are less impressive than one, what one would expect, given the strength of the rhetoric that one hears. Um, in the other countries, Babish in the Czech Republic talks about you know, foreign investors and you know, being unhappy about the fact that um, foreign investors take their profits out of the Czech Republic, you know, so 
he'd like to talk to foreign investors about that and you know could they could they maybe not repatriate their profits so they could stay in the Czech Republic and you know and and and, and do work uh, but it's a much milder um, kind of discourse and then in Slovakia um, which uh, was led by a man named Robert Fico, who said all kinds of horrid and inflammatory things um, about uh, migrants and about Islam. Um, on foreign investors, the the sort of the, the they continue to be very favorable, and the same is true of, of the Bulgarians. Um, uh, so, so there's really this division between the leaders Poland and Hungary and the rest of the the rest of the region or the rest of the populists in the region. Um, and I think one question is, you know, to what extent are the leaders going to have followers? Will there be emulation? Uh, in Romania, where there hasn't been a right populist party that's had success in, in, any, in any meaningful sense, um, because the left uh, social democratic party has some sort of populist elements to it, occupies some right positions on social issues also, and has an incredible uh, sort of party organization that reaches down to the ground, and so it's very difficult to, um, to dislodge, has also pursued some anti-FDI regulation, like regulating large retailers of food, which effectively means foreign firms, um, because all of the large supermarkets are, are owned by foreign, or they're foreign companies, um, regulating that, you know, they have to have a certain percentage, quite high percentage of locally produced products in the store. So, you know, so I think there is some emulation that's already happening, but it's not clear to what extent that will go yet. Yeah, thank you. And, and it also seems that the, there seem to be bursts of anti-foreign direct investment uh, sort of policy, and renationalization, nationalization of industry, uh, and and so from some of the sort of data you present that that in both Poland and Hungary, 2015, 2016 seem to have been marked by, uh, to an extent, a matching of the of the rhetoric with the policy. But this really seems to have dropped off, sort of 2017, 18, 19. That it seems to be much less. And you really do point out that some of those policies that have been put in place, sort of bank taxes. A corporation tax and things are are being reversed, and that, that there may have been a a change. And so, so what were, were some of your conclusions about why there might have been this change, and, and to an extent, a re, almost a reversal? Mm -hmm. So I think I think there are a number of, of interesting things about that. And one is that, as far as policy implications go, it's pretty clear that Viktor Orban um, in Hungary and the leaders of the Law and Justice Party, but uh, Kaczynski, the 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 party, the sort of the father of the party, uh, um, are not particularly sensitive to foreign opinion on, you know, their statements about uh, foreigners, migrants, um, Jews, and the Jewish question, and their questions related to the, the place of Jews in Poland and property restitution, and, you know, they, they're not really sort of interested in being reprimanded, nor, nor do they seem to care. But it is interesting, I think, that um, on FDI, instead, they are quite sensitive to uh, issue to the perceptions of foreign investors of Hungary and Poland. So I think, like, I think that that recognizing or finding that this linkage is still one that works and that has the possibility to be a kind of um, point of leverage uh, on these countries is important. To the extent that you know foreign business cares about any of the other issues that you know 
most of us probably find, um, or any of the positions that most of us probably find disturbing, uh, you know, that I don't know, right? Like, so, you know, they're, if they're really only interested in profits, um, you know, the horrific statements of migrants on, about migrants aren't going to scare off investors in Poland and Hungary. Um, but, uh, you know, other policy issues, policy positions that, um, that the Hungarians and the Poles have might. So I think that's an important realization. Uh, and I think it's in that context that the reversals are telling, right? That, you know, they're sort of experimenting. And I think the way to think about this process is um, FDI offers us a window onto how it is that particularly the Poles and the Hungarians think about their relationship with the, with the international economy and reveals how they would like to reshape that relationship from one of dependence to one that's perhaps more equal to one that brings more high-tech expertise and expertise transfer uh, that you know, creates different kinds of jobs and skill transfer among larger parts of the population um, that integrates, you know, local expertise into sort of top management, right? Those are the sort of the, the things that they want and that they would like to be different. But there may be, I think, the way to interpret the reversals is that they're not quite clear on how far they can go with this experiment. And I think that helps us to see that what's going on here, and this is where, you know, I think we come back full circle to the question of diversity and experimentation and what's possible. Um, there is, I think, what we're watching is the emergence or development of a, a new kind of growth model that they would like to implement that's no longer based on this kind of dependent production, but it is, is different from that, um, and that has these countries on a more equal and empowered footing. Now, in the things that I've looked at and people I've spoken to, nobody makes reference to, you know, the sort of East Asian model or, right, like it's, it's not a, it's at least not yet. I don't know if that's part of the thinking, um, but it's not explicitly acknowledged, you know, like we want to pull off this kind of miracle like the East Asian countries pulled off. They went from being poor and dependent, you know, and now look, right, like look at the South Koreans. And so Poland could be like that, right? Like why can't Poland be like that? Um, so I haven't run across that, but, it, but I think like that's the, I, my sense is that that's the sort of direction that they are, right? Is that, you know, there could be an alternative um, rules of the game and we're trying to discover what they are. And Orban even explicitly uh, in 2016 gives a speech in which he says effectively that, you know, like there was a period until recently, until the financial crisis, where we understood the rules of the game. There were certain things that you had to do if you wanted to grow, and all you had to do was do them. And then the financial crisis came. And now we're in a period where those rules don't work anymore where we don't understand any longer what the real rules are. And so effectively what we're doing is tinkering to kind of figure out what those new rules could be. And, and do you get the impression that obviously the ambition is to reshape national approaches, potentially uh, regional approaches, potentially the approach of, for example, the EU? Um, 
do you get the impression there's been success in reshaping, reshaping national politics in these countries such that opposition parties may also now be perhaps more aligned with these governing parties in their views towards foreign direct investment? I mean, it seems like the, the governing parties have, yeah, as you said, experimenting. They've rode back from more, some of their extreme positions to more moderate positions but do you, do you get the impression that the broad national consensus that they've managed to achieve or maybe this varies um so i, I think it varies uh in slovakia as the sort of as the as fico's um party the social the in name social democrats but in fact um you know right populist party uh began to take on more uh, inflammatory positions with regard to foreign direct investment and other issues, um, but specifically with regard to foreign inve- direct investment, um, the uh, the main opposition party also began to emulate some of those positions, right? So the sort of main left opposition party began to emulate some of those um, positions. In, in Poland and Hungary... Um, and okay, so you know that's that's I think the the only place where it's sort of like this is where there's this sort of emulation in Bulgaria um, and uh, in the Czech Republic. To my knowledge, certainly in Bulgaria now and in the Czech Republic, um, you know I think Babish is seen as a kind of uh, a character who appeals to some and 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 could never appeal to others, much like Trump, whom he is trying to emulate. Right, so you know there's nothing that. Trump could say that would get, you know, most Democrats to vote for him, right? And, you know, and there's, there's really no kind of conversion opportunity there. So I think, I, think, um, I, I think there's limited scope there for the idea that, like, you know, parroting those positions would be a way to edge out, to edge out. I think that works for, you know, that works for center-right parties and edging out right, far-right parties, but it doesn't really work for left opposition parties with regard to right parties. And, um, and I think that's also true in Poland. You know, the the, the electorate of law and justice uh, is 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 really you know it, I mean it, it is a div- deeply divided society. And uh, you know, if you are socially conservative and um, nationalistic, uh, and you vote for law and justice, um, you know, you you probably don't have many acquaintances who don't do that and vice versa, right? It's a, you know, it's a kind of separate world and, um, and it's, and I, it's not, it's, it's not conceivable that, you know, one could vote for law and justice, even like, even if you vote for the, for, for the center, the pro-business center, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's still, I think, remarkable that, that both Fidesz and, and law and justice are still doing so well in, in the polls that they are at least in sort of national parliamentary elections, it seems hard to envision a time when they're not going to be in power. Obviously, that will happen, but they're, they're still running very high despite being in power, particularly in Hungary, for, for nine years or so. Um, and do you think that the the anti-FDI policy actually had an effect on local business, uh, on local capital, domestic kind of capital uh, and industry that maybe translates into economic benefits and or the electoral support? Um, you mentioned earlier that... that some of the traditional support for these parties has been more rural rather than urban, uh, perhaps lower socioeconomic groups. So has this perhaps been a, a, also an electoral strategy to broaden the support for them in, in sort of local entrepreneurs and, and local industry and domestic industry? So 
you know, it, with regard to like what the actual economic results of this strategy are, I think you know it's it's too early to tell, and you know, and I, yeah, I just I don't have a I don't have a sense of that, um, and I'm not sure that anybody else does yet either. Uh, with with regard to drawing support, um, so uh, there are various surveys of entrepreneurs uh, available um, where um, small and medium sized enterprise owners as well as um, I know of one survey of top managers, are polled about their beliefs about capitalism um, and polled about their uh, sort of visions of the role of the state in the economy, uh, redistributive policies, um, the right to work. And, uh, and, and it's really quite striking that the owners of these firms, small and medium-sized enterprises, which means up to 250 employees, that amount uh, account for about 50% of GDP in Poland um, and about 60% of the workforce, uh, that the owners of these businesses are strongly in favor of a state intervention in the economy. They believe that public funds should be used to create jobs, should be used to promote new technologies. Um, they uh, believe that um, foreign businesses should be regulated in some way, uh, and more generally, the public um, has, you know, sort of beliefs about uh, price controls. So 70% of the public believes that prices should be controlled um, by the government and not by the market. 70% of the public. Um, you know, we're now 30 years after 1989, right? Like, this isn't just a kind of post-transitional, uh, you know, people don't like change, and, you know, we want to go back to the way things were. This was a long time ago now. Uh, many of those 70% had no experience of, were born after communism and, you know, and still have the, these beliefs. So I think that's, um, that's quite striking. Uh, even more striking, um, a 2010 survey <clears throat> of the managers of top firms in, um, in Poland uh, revealed that about 44% of top managers in top firms, I mean, like the largest firms in the Polish economy, uh, are alienated by capitalist principles of competition and are not convinced that um, the institutions of Western liberal capitalism are really suited to a post-communist country. But perhaps some other set of institutions would be more appropriate. So I think that's, you know, I think that reveals a really deep skepticism about a neoliberal vision, you know, a, a sort of liberal market-oriented vision of, um, of, of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and also, I, what was noticeable as, as someone who looks at sort of energy policy was uh, that in the midst of this, particularly in Hungary, this sort of anti-FDI measures and rhetoric, there was still obviously a, a necessity to court foreign direct investment. And I'm thinking if there's a massive investment from Russia into the nuclear power plants back in 2014. And I suppose more recently as well, you've seen Orban saying the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative is fully in harmony with, with Hungarian interests. So it's never been as, as extreme as to say all foreign direct investment, all of the policies that we are going to enact are anti-FDI. And I think that you, some of your, your data really supports this, that simultaneously there were also policies that encouraged some yeah. uh, sort of foreign direct investment. There were still some privatizations going on. So it was it was always a, a kind of mixed, mm -hmm. um, yeah, sort of rhetoric to an extent, but mixed policies, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, but there's this, there's certainly also, I think, that important finding from the paper there, that that does seem to be this change in the last few years, that, that this experimentation perhaps reached its, its limits. Um, for now. Yeah, for now. For now. Um, and, yeah, and also I think that you, you mentioned that these the, the striking uh, sort of findings of uh, yeah, local entrepreneurs about their beliefs in, in the role of the state in capitalism, um, and also some of those of, of yeah, of public policy, some real kind of, Skepticism, a broad sort of belief that trade is good, but within within limits. So I think it's it's really interesting to find that this, and also one of the, the sort of tables you present and some of that data you present, that actually what's striking there is a consistency across the region. Um, so I thought this was yeah some, mm-hmm. some really significant um, sort of findings. Um, well, maybe before before we end, would you be able to say a little bit about where you see this research sort of going and, and, and um, what your ambitions beyond the paper even, maybe? Yeah. So I, I, um, I think my, my next project, uh, which this is part of, uh, is interrogating what I see as attempts to create a new post-communist growth model. Um, and one that deviates from the market orthodoxy, the neoliberal orthodoxy that held in the region more or less until around the financial crisis. You know, this was the sort of, there was an unquestioned commitment to, like, yes, we're doing all these things, you know, the things that, that the Washington consensus prescribes. And after 2008, that consensus breaks down. And so what we see here with FDI is one part of an attempt to experiment with some alternative vision. Uh, one thing I hadn't mentioned yet, um, you know, was, for example, the polls have um, nationalized, uh, recently nationalized privately held pensions. And the plan is to use some of that capital, um, you know, basically money that was private people's money um, that now is public money and that they will receive out of some public fund, retirement fund. Um, but the plan is to use some of that money as a kind of development growth fund, right? So it would be a sort of stimulus fund for... Um, it's not completely clear how that will work or, you know, what that involves. And, uh, I, you know, I, I plan to spend some time trying to figure out, like, exactly what do the people who work in this newly established development body, which, you know, I think the Poles are imagining is a kind of, you know, Polish version of Japan's MIDI or, you know, or the other similar ministries um, in East Asia. Although, again, there's no explicit reference to that. Uh, um so I think the, these, you know, these other pieces, the development strategy and the bureaucratic apparatus that's being established to, uh, to promote growth, so the, you know, effectively how there is a shifting vision of what the state is supposed to be doing in the economy to promote growth is another piece. Um, FDI is the, you know, how we organize our relationship with the international. Of course, that's limited by these countries' membership in the European Union, so there's a limit to exactly what they can do uh, and what tools they have at their disposal. The role of the state in the economy is the sort of domestic piece um, of how we you know, can try to use various measures to promote growth. And then social policy, I think, is a third important piece of this emerging vision um, in which... Uh, Maybe partly for, you know, political capital, um, but I don't think that's, you know, that's, I think, a sort of cheap explanation, right? I think there's more conviction behind the social policies that 
for example, in Poland, um, the 500 plus policy, which is intended to promote childbirth and um, to provide funds to, uh, to new parents. Uh, and, you know, is basically a kind of welfare program for, um, for new parents, uh, also reveals a kind of new vision. Um, so these three pieces together, I think, are part of like a kind of a bigger, what I'm calling a growth model um, that the polls are in the process of putting together and experimenting with. And, um, and, and so the book project that I see coming out of this explores the emergence of these growth models. Thank you very much. And, and maybe just one final question uh, on, on sort of methodology and, and how open um, potential interviews have been to kind of discussing this, both in sort of private uh, sort of firms, but also I don't know if you're, you're talking to those in the government. I don't know whether this is a sensitive area, because in some ways, as you as you are talking about this, this is something that they government uh, governing parties want to project. There's a positive vision. Uh, and yet in the past, I could imagine that there's been some controversies around it. I don't know if it's at all been challenging or uh, in order to go out there and, and sort of talk to some of the people that you sort of mentioned in this paper and presumably in, in the sort of following book. So I think the, the key, um, I, I learned the hard way that getting people to talk, working on the book, um, getting people to talk about sensitive issues is, you know, not, not an easy thing, um, especially... Uh, you know, in the early transition period, talking about people's network ties and, you know, their political connections was not something that people were eager to talk about um, often. Uh, but you figure out ways to get people to, to build trust and to get people to talk about these things. And the key, I think, for me in approaching government officials has been to really try to stay away from, you know, the, the perception, for giving the, giving the impression that, you know, here's this foreigner you know, liberal left foreigner from California, on top of everything else, um, you know, who's come here to sort of judge what we are doing and, you know, and judge negatively. Um, so, I, you know, I've somehow managed to, to avoid that problem and, uh, and, and had quite good access. In part, I think, um, also, uh, in, you know, what, what's been working to my advantage is that Many of the people who work not at the very highest levels of the ministries that are involved in these different policy areas are people who are career bureaucrats and, um, and have been around for a while, partly because, you know, they haven't gotten around to cleaning them out yet, um, partly because they have technical competence and, you know, and they're interested in working on these policy areas and, you know, and, and the, the sort of high-level political rhetoric doesn't, they feel... I've asked about this explicitly. They don't feel like it affects them, you know, in a day-to-day -day way. And um, in fact, you know, they think that a new kind of development policy, even though their political sympathies maybe don't align with the, with the governing parties, they're agreed that a new kind of development policy is a sensible thing to try to work on. And, um, and so, you know, they're behind that mission and they're more than happy to talk about it. And I think that's, that's been the key to getting people to open up about, about these things. Yeah. Okay, well, great. Well, well, thanks so much, uh, Roger, for joining us on the on the Governance pod Podcast. And, and to all our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about upcoming podcasts, events and blogs at the Study for the Centre of Governance and Society, follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at CSGSKCL. And we look forward to welcoming you back soon on the Governance Podcast. Mm -hmm.